0: Peter House Church Sermon of the Week. Our desire is to remain in God's presence, explore His passions, and supply tools that serve and inspire our city. So, Paul, we're going to bless you. Paul Brown in the house. All right, if y'all don't mind just reaching out your arms to Paul, let's just pray for him real quick. So, Father, we just thank you for Paul, for the man of character um, that he is. and that he has your heart and that he has—he wants your ear. He wants to uh, everything yeah. that comes from him to be from you. So, Father, just thank you for the word that you've given him this morning. And, Lord, I pray that you would um, yeah, just make it personal to each of us so that we can um, come to you and and figure out how, what it means for us, Father, to walk in and what you're uh, bringing through him today. In the name of Jesus, amen.
1: Good morning. Man, how good was that? I got two things that was like such a good, deep, like soaking, heavy worship service. So first, uh, uh, just as before I get started, I, w- I want to share, as I was sitting there, I haven't been nervous, and I wouldn't say my feeling is nervous today, but I feel the weight of the, of the honor that I have to speak to this group of people. So it's like, not, I'm not nervous today. I, I haven't been nervous to speak in front of people in a long time. What I would say is, like, I feel the value and the weight of it in a different way today than I've felt in a long time. And so, partly because I don't want you all to fall asleep um, as I start teaching. And, and second is, we're going to talk about sacrifice today and how that's a communal thing. That sacrifice is both deeply personal as an individual, but it's also something we do as a community. It's been modeled throughout the, the scripture, and then beyond that, this is your community. So I want to do this, since we all had that really, like, amazing worship from Micah. It was very low and slow. Let's get up on our feet real quick. And and I want my nephews going to test this. So when I hug my nephews, there's, like, some gusto to it. There's, like, some oomph to a hug when I give it to my nephews probably all y'all so pick a person in the room that you feel comfortable with and this is your community as we talk today appropriately find somebody and give them like a hug with some gusto this is your community this is like love on somebody real quick it should be some giggles a little bit awkward so that we got a little bit of movement going and then then we'll settle back down to do business but we got to break this up oh god mercy. So good. All right. If anybody falls asleep after that, I'm definitely judging you. (laughs) Oh, Jesus in the back. Jesus is in the room in the back. All right. So, guys, we're going to talk through some, uh, essentially, what the Bible has to say about sacrifice, offering, what does that mean for us in our lives, and so we're leaving from finishing a fast, so everybody in the room, we talked, we announced we're going to do a church-wide fast, so um, we're breaking that fast, some people are breaking it today, some other folks fasted for a shorter amount of time, but corporately, finishing a fast where we were going to ask the Lord, hey, what are you doing, what are you doing in this family, what are you doing in this body? so during that time I'd say this year the Lord has stirred the idea of sacrifice and offering in my heart so deeply Um, and I've had to truly bring so many things to the altar bring my intellect bring my thoughts my opinions and my feelings to the altar so many times this year and in a way that I've not I'd say I've been always called but maybe never met the expectation and so in that, I want to kind of dive into it today, but I don't want to lose that we're finishing a fast. And so as we're finishing our fast, um, I would say this is like fasting is relatively illogical, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to withhold something that I enjoy or that I hold in high esteem for a period of time. And, and what it actually is is it's a, pr- it's a prolonged sacrifice, right? So we're not going to just do it one day. We're going to say, hey, I'm going to do this day in and day out. And I'm going to make it make it an opportunity for God to move in my life, move in this body, move in these people. So we're we're finishing that today. And then we we will reap the reward of going to our father and asking him what is on our lives? What is on our church? What is on our family? And what do you have for us? Amen. All right. So let's jump into here. So. Uh, I think I've told this story before. I don't know if you've all heard it, but uh, I'm going to start my message with this. So in my house, we say this probably at least once every day, but everything costs something. Anybody ever heard me say that? My kids literally want to throw up when I say it. Because in our house, we live in a way where we say, hey, everything costs something. There's nothing that comes for free. So it's going to cost time, energy, emotion, resources. Like there's nothing. You're making decisions all day, every day and everything costs something, okay? So we're going to start our message with a mindset that we're as we get into the scripture and as we get into sacrifice, we're going to we're going to look at it from the lens of what is this costing, whether I do it or don't do it. Does that make sense? It's not just what does it cost to sacrifice, it's what does it cost to not sacrifice? It's the second part of the question you have to ask yourself. And then the second thing I want to share is this, is it's funny as I, as I dove into the word, our culture, our family, our community—when we grow up in the church, we do such a good job of tr- portraying Christian principles as uniquely Christian. Does that make sense? We do a good job of like teaching our children that, man, like this is this is what it means to be a Christian. Well, then we grow up with the idea that like we have the market cornered on goodness. We have like the market cornered on sacrifice. And so before we get into what the Bible says about it, I I was really meditating on what's the difference between the idea of biblical sacrifice and what every other culture has done since the dawn of time. I mean, you look at, um, you know, ancient Norse culture, they would go to go to battle and one warrior would sacrifice himself before the battle so that he could go before the gods and appeal to the gods on behalf of his army. So he would literally die before the battle so that less people would die in the battle, right? You had tribes in ancient Near East that would sacrifice a, a, a child so that their crop would be good, right? It's not uniquely Christian, the idea of sacrifice. What I will say is as we get into it is the difference is when we sacrifice within Christianity, the sacrifice that's called for us is one that's unique because it doesn't, you're not ever sacrificing for a specific return. The moment you start to sacrifice for a specific return, it's no longer the model of sacrificing the word. Now, you might be sacrificing because you did something in the past that you're trying to overcome. Well, we don't have to do that anymore, but that was obviously the model for thousands of years. But in other cultures, It was, I sacrifice this thing for this thing in the future. For us, it's, I sacrifice this thing so that I can be more who I ought be, and then in the future we'll be better because I'm more who God created me to be. So, it's I-centric. We're not sacrificing for some foreseeable thing. We're sacrificing for what might be if I were to sacrifice. See the difference? So, we're starting Genesis, so h- I'm going to run through Adam and Eve because I do want to set this this theme. And what I said before is, like, one, it's not unique to us. We don't have the market cornered. And two, we often don't n- realize what the first sacrifice is. So I want to go back in, into Genesis. We're going to go to Genesis 2. So in verses 8 and 9, kind of introducing where the Lord, it says the Lord God planted a garden toward the east, in Eden, and there he placed the man who he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord caused every tree to grow that is pleasing to the sight to, to the site and good for food. And the tree of life was there also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Mm-hmm. So God puts Adam and Eve in the garden, right? And he, pl- he, p- he makes everything pleasing to the sight. So there's nothing in the garden that doesn't look good. Does that make sense? Like, they're living somewhere where everything looks good to eat. So the tree of the knowledge and good and evil didn't look more specifically delicious than the tree of life, and it didn't look more specifically delicious than anything else in the garden. God made everything pleasing to sight, right, and good to eat. So if you continue on, you you go to Genesis, uh, uh, to verse 15 through 17, and it says in verse 15, it says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to tend it. And the Lord commanded man, saying, From any tree in the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for on the day that you eat it you will surely die. So God sets the standard, right? And it's important here to say he didn't say why other than you'll die. He didn't, like, lay out all the consequences. He just said, hey, this thing is not life. All the, re- all the rest of this, everything else is life, but this thing's not. And I just need you to trust me in that. It doesn't go into a lot of detail. This is a pretty quick scripture. So go to Genesis 3. So now we get to where the serpent comes along. So in Genesis 3, verses 1 through 5, it says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any animal of the field, which the Lord God has made. And he said to the woman, has God really said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, for the fruit of the garden, uh, I'm sorry, the woman said to the serpent, for the fruit of the tree of the gardens, we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you certainly will not die for God knows that on the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. All right. So I want to sit here for a second. It's so funny. I shared this with Sam earlier. I, I don't use a lot of scripture in my messages because when I start to get into scripture, like, I, I like, pulled this thread. And then all of a sudden, 10 minutes later, I'm like, it's a seven-hour podcast that I'm doing. Right. And I'm bringing y'all like down this way and then I'm bringing you back over here. It's like, man, the word of God is so rich with information in life that the moment I start getting into it, I'm just like I just start to just go. So I'm like, all right, cool. I'm in one scripture because <laughs> if I don't, it just it just gets like guys. There's so much in here. But I want to I want to bring something up. And I'd say, guys, this is specific to this time. And, and I would say this is something that we have to bring to the altar. And I want to call this out specifically. What did the enemy say to Eve? He twisted the word of God. And I'm not going to go down a rabbit trail here, but uh, see, this one was important because it became almost a complete side mission while I was writing this message. I mean, it it pulled my heart so hard, I almost just abandoned everything else I was going to teach. Because what he does in verse one, as he says, has God really said? how many times in our culture today with access to information are you getting some side mission where someone is saying, well, that's what we've said scripture said for thousands of years, but but has God really said? And like the hair's standing up on the back of my neck as I say it, and it's like, hey, at the end of the day, guys, the word of God is life. Amen. And any time we depart from it to come up with some other concept or we say, but, right? It's the word of God is life and, not but. So the moment you hear a but, it's like, you, you need to take that to the altar, right? And then that's a burnt sacrifice that what's left is life. And that's, we'll figure it out after that. But, so I just wanted to say that, man, that scripture just crushed my heart as I was reading it. So essentially, though, what do they do? They go on, they take and eat of the fruit. Um, So, let's go to just Genesis 3, 6, and 7. So, just to stay in this vein. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took some of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves waist coverings. Okay. So this is really important. What did we say earlier? It says literally everything in the garden was looked pleasing to the eye. There was nothing in the garden. None of the fruit of the garden looked specifically more pleasing. But someone twisted the word of God, and all of a sudden her perspective on that one thing changed. Because there was this question behind it, right? So what does she do? She takes and eats, and then she shares with someone else. So Let's talk about this just real quick. So then, what every time you've ever heard this scripture, what's the first sacrifice you hear about, right? So Adam and Eve died, uh, died in the garden when they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Where does everybody go with sacrifice, right? It goes to hey, God then had to kill an animal to cover them. And here's here's where it gets interesting for me that we're at this tipping point where we'll get into the offering thing in a little mi- a minute, but like we have Jesus. So we don't have to give the thought to this that it warrants. Have y'all considered that? Think about it. You have Jesus who has forgiven and covered everything you've ever done or will do. And so you don't have to give it the intentionality and the thought that it requires like every other generation before you or before Christ. Let's say better than that. Sorry, before Christ's sacrifice, it was a daily part of their life to bring a burnt offering every single day. It was an intentionality that they lived in every day to prioritize what they were doing with their life. And because of Jesus, which is an amazing thing, th- what was restored to us what was, was what, what was lost by Adam and Eve. And so the first sacrifice, let's run this back. Well, the first sacrifice was when Eve decided to sacrifice the promise that God had given for immediate gratification. So we skip the first sacrifice. It's the one that we don't think about. Eve sacrificed all that God had for them when she chose to take and eat. But we skip straight to the sacrifice that God made to cover them. And in our lives, what we do is think you're going to the top of the mountain. Well, if I don't check in at the top of the mountain occasionally, if I don't make sure my eyes are fixed on the highest good on on the top of the mountain, and I'm like, oh, well, there's, there's a pond over here I want to go get in. And then this, this pond leads to somewhere else. We, we make small sacrifices that all of a sudden what has to happen? Well, then God has to cover us like he did with Adam and Eve to bring us back to being under him, right? So the first sacrifice wasn't God. It was literally Eve's sacrifice, her future potential that God said that he had for him, her and Adam. She sacrificed that first. So the next part of it is the second sacrifice was time. So, guys, remember we say everything costs something. So what do they do? Now they're in the garden sowing leaves together. So before Jesus or God ever did anything, they've already sacrificed their future so they can have immediate gratification. Now they, they feel self-conscious because they're aware and they're uncovered and they feel exposed so what do they do a human born sacrifice is, is completed they grab these leaves they sew them together to cover and they cover themselves enough that they're no longer ashamed with each other problem solved well that doesn't really stand up when god himself shows up right so what do they do they go into the bushes and they hide because human born sacrifice when it's by our intellect alone it's not sufficient to stand before the Father, but we are empowered to do it and to sacrifice in a way that at least I'm covered to the people around me, right? That feels good. So we can live that way until we invite the Holy Spirit or God into it, and then all of a sudden that's not sufficient. Why? Well, if it was, if it was sufficient, if that human-born sacrifice of time and energy to make waste coverings was enough, Adam and Eve wouldn't have hidden it doesn't say they hid because they sinned. It doesn't say they hid because they ate from the tree. It says they hid because they knew they were naked. Does that make sense? So this human-born sacrifice in our intellect where we start to p- position ourselves and piece something together to cover our nakedness and exposure to each other, it's great. It's, it's, a, it's a great camouflage for actually going before the Lord and actually being exposed before him. So in Genesis 3.8 it says, now they heard some noise, and went to the end of the gar and let's just do this. I'm gonna skip that part. So at the at the end of Genesis 3, it says uh in verse 21, it says, And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve, and uh clothed them. This is interesting to me because they had already made waist coverings, right? So if you look at the meta-narrative in the Bible, Adam and Eve had covered up. Then they ex- they were exposed to God, and he said, hey, why are you hiding? They said, hey, we're hiding because of this. And then God goes into the repercussions of eating from the tree, right? He says, like, hey, there's going to be thorns and thistles from the land. Childbirth's going to be hard. And so even though they sinned, even though they did that thing, what did God do? He took I can't imagine having to sow leaves together every day. Can you imagine? You're walking through the thorns and thistles that are now caused by sin. It's getting ripped up. So what does God say? He says, hey, this covering, the, this human-born sacrifice is not sufficient to cover them. So then he goes and kills something and does a substitution of sacrifice, right? Which is a, a, it's one of the threads that goes through all of Scripture. And so he gives for them something that would actually cover them and protect them before he sends them out of the garden. It's not like he just booted them out, right? Good luck, you sinned. He booted them out, but he did it after he gave them suitable clothing to cover them, to protect them, right? So I wanted to talk about that real quick, and then I want to jump straight from that to this, is what we lose when we read the story of Adam and Eve, if we're not careful, is that what actually occurred and in the garden that day was that there was a promise of a full life in the garden with God, walking in relationship with God. What occurred is they sacrificed Adam and Eve sacrificed a f- potential future, perfect future, heaven on earth. Eden was heaven on earth. So they they sacrificed that for immediate gratification. Does, can anybody in the room identify with we are, we are on a mission, we're on the winning team, we are ushering the kingdom of heaven into earth. If, you, if you're breathing and alive, you every day are sacrificing heaven on earth in your daily decisions, and you're choosing immediate gratification and substitution for heaven on earth. Make sense? So let's not look past how important that was. Well, here's what's so funny. What did Adam and Eve operate with God in in the garden first is influence. So think about it like this. Anybody that has kids or is a child and has a parent, would you prefer to function with your child from a place of influence or a place of authority? When you're in a conversation with your child and and you're trying to talk with your child or you're trying to talk with your parent, Is it most optimal to be functioning from a place of influence or one of authority? Well, that's a pretty easy answer, right? It's influence. Well, influence is hard, and it costs something. So what happened is Adam and Eve gave away their relational influence with God when they chose to be immediately gratified, to look past the promise from God himself, and to choose to depart from that. So influence was lost. So what's neat, and this is where I say i got to be careful in Scripture because I'll end up on like a seven-hour rant. But what's neat about it is when you watch people mess up in the Bible, have you ever noticed how God responds? They deal with the consequences, but his word is good. And his blessing that he told them stays on them. And then it actually leads to worse things because the blessing he gave them before they messed up, they still own it. They still get it. Does that make sense? Like, like this person has great influence. They go and mess things up and they make a mess. He doesn't like take the influence back. Like, oh man, you messed it up. It's like, no, what, what God gives, he honors what he gives. And so it's such a beautiful thing. So when we look at burnt offerings and I'm going to kind of just skip through a couple scriptures here that I might not get up on the screen, but um, so in Leviticus, Christy, you can put this one up. So it says uh, in Leviticus one, three and four, it says, uh, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without defect. He shall offer it in the doorway of the tent of meetings so that they may be accepted by the before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering so that it may be accepted as, uh, for him to make atonement for his belief uh, for his on his behalf. So let, let's talk about this real quick, and we, we kind of alluded to it before. So we get to escape the idea of sacrifice, because Jesus was this awesome, beautiful substitute, right? But think about this. What level of intentionality would you live your life in if when you fell short of the highest good on your life, you had to go put your hand on the head of a calf or a sheep and cut its throat? Think about that. I don't, I don't think we, we understand that, that image. But the law said that. It said you don't just get to go drop off the best cow that you have at the guys and say, good luck. That's not, a, that's not in the books. You literally have to go there. There's rules on what you have to bring. You then go there. You have to put your hand on the head of the animal as its life is taken as a substitution. For you not walking in the highest good in your life. So there's multiple kinds of offerings. So I'm not going to go down that downward spiral. But here's what's interesting. They didn't offer this thing and then cook it and eat it. There were some celebratory offerings where they did that. But for the most part, the model that, that God put in place when he had to rule by authority, right? So there's no longer influence. Adam and Eve gave influence away. So God then, because he loved his people, had to rule by authority for generations. And so through authority, he made rules that pointed them back at a cognitive level. So today, when I go to do the thing that I shouldn't do, it's going to cost me tomorrow when I have to go to the altar and then I'm going to actually experience the cost of me not being who I could be today, tomorrow. And then the next day, I'm going to have to do the same thing. And then the next day, I'm going to have to do the same thing. And the rules are, if it's real, real bad, and you, you do it intentionally, you consciously say, hey, here's the highest good. But I'm going to wrong somebody else. You didn't just have to do the same thing. You had to do the normal one because you're messing up all the time. But you also had to do another offering. That one had to be in public. You had to tell everybody what you did. And then you had to pay back whatever you did, plus 20%. And so what God was doing is there was no longer influence with his people. So he's ruling by rule and authority. So think about it if you're a kid. And I don't know how many times I ever heard this as a child. I think my parents did a great job teaching me thematically. But how many times as a kid did you ever think, I'm going to take this peppermint from the store? And then you thought, man, maybe I ought not betray myself and my morals and my value. And maybe I ought not diminish and be less than I could be because I'm going to have to give this peppermint plus more back. Plus, I'm going to have to tell everybody in my community about it that we just gave big hugs. Plus, I'm going to have to do an extra sacrifice. And they lived that way. That was a a discipline on their life to atone for their sin. And it's it's so easy to take Jesus' sacrifice for granted. Everybody can sit in here during a a soft, beautiful worship morning like this morning and say they love Jesus and thank you for the cross and all these things. But if you're not, that is why we're called Christians. If you're not, like in my last time I talked— Going to the cross and being like Christ. And if you're not living with an intentionality to live a life of sacrifice, where you're taking what your your thoughts, your will, your emotions, your mind, your will, your emotions, your soul, and you're bringing it to the altar to sacrifice. And you're laying your own hand on the what the thing that you did and paying for it. Now, I'm not saying you do it from a place of guilt. Right. That's gone. It's been paid for. But the discipline that comes from reading this word, reading what what might my life be if I were to, to not do these things, and I know I'm going to pay for it later. Everything costs something. And so what this was was a physical representation of what's happening in the spirit realm. It's what's happening in your mind. It's what's happening in your heart when you choose to be less than you could be. Does that make sense? So I want to share just one neat concept, and this is from Numbers. I'm not going to read the whole scripture, but if you want to go in and read Numbers, uh, chapter 15, 1 through 10. So this is literally the law that Moses gives. So this is neat. This is after multiple generations are out of Canaan. There's restoration back into the land, and Moses is giving the law for the people going into the land. And it's really interesting to think about something. So what did Eve... Adam and Eve sacrificed a potential life for immediate gratification, right? So let's look at this theme that God lays out in the law that he gives Moses specifically. And this is actually echoed in in the rest of the law. But in Numbers, essentially it says, hey, if you're going to sacrifice a lamb, you also have to sacrifice some herbs and some oils and some stuff. If you're going to offer a young animal, well, an animal that you've started to see some of its potential, you have to offer twice as many other things with it. And if you're going to offer a full-grown cow or ox, you actually have to offer three times the rest of the stuff. Why, why in the world? I mean, this is like God, God has like weird rules. But here's the thing. I'll have kids and I'll like get Starburst jelly beans and I'll give them to them. And I'll always give them to one kid to hand out to the other kids, but I fill up both of their hands. And then i watch them evaluate which hand they're going to give away. Make sense? They're like, oh, this one has all yellows. I hate yellows. Shoink. I give that one away. Then I fill up their next hand, and then they're like, oh, it has more greens. So what do they do? They give their, all of a sudden, the left hand's just as good. It's <laughs> better than the right hand. But the right hand was just worse than the left hand. Our brains from childhood are wired to make sure we hold on to the most valuable thing. And so here's the thing with burnt offerings. When you bring something young, you're actually sacrificing the fullest potential. You have no idea what it could be. When I sacrifice my fully grown ox, it's the best ox I have, but it's still not as good as what could be of my half-grown ox. And it's not, I have no idea, it might be even less good than this lamb or this brand new one. So what did God do is he met that, I'm sorry, man, uh, when I when the Lord like stirs something in my heart, it's like the spirit hits my face, my face is tingling. But think about it. Think about that in the law, because he didn't have influence and he couldn't speak to your heart like he can now through the Holy Spirit. He put something in place so that when you went to sacrifice what you knew. It cost you more of everything else you had to when you chose to give something that you knew the potential of it, you had to meet that sacrifice with three times other things of value. But when you were willing to go sacrifice what he called for, not knowing the end result of the sacrifice, not knowing if you were sacrificing what might have been the best breeding stock in your entire herd that you'll ever have, you didn't have to sacrifice as much. So in his weird rules that don't make any sense, that as I jump into scripture, I find myself reading for like three hours, and I just get so excited, and I'm like, This is a message in and of itself, and I want to talk about this for the next 30 minutes. But how cool is that, that God knows us so well that he's like, hey, sacrifice is not about giving up something because you did something wrong. Sacrifice is about realigning your values so that you're willing to give up more than what you know for what you might be. How powerful is that? How powerful is it that in his rules, he's even teasing greater life out of you? Now, here's where it gets funny for me because I, I don't know what shifted. I don't know what changed in humanity, and I, I could go down this spiral for hours of like, well, what, what, what happened that made Jesus come back when he did? What changed about mankind that he was able to give Jesus to be a substitutionary sacrifice? And then now we have the Holy Spirit who then can inform us of these truths. That we don't need a law that says, hey, substitute this over this. But instead we have a helper. We have a paraclete. We have someone who has our back. A counselor. Who then is coming to us and going, hey, are you sure you ought to give up your, your biggest calf? Maybe you ought to give away this baby. And then he's challenging your heart. He's calling you to sacrifice. Which is what, we, what do we do? We just did a fast. Well, we went to the Holy Spirit and we said, what would you have me lay down? Not just every day, but then what would you have me change about me or my family or my body that would be an investment in for all of my future? So, mm-hmm. the last part of this is, I think, the most important part for me. So, we talked about the beginning, which is Adam and Eve. We talked about how we, we totally forget about the first sacrifice that happened which was we chose immediate gratification, which then led to self. We chose the good we want now instead of the good we deserve later. We chose to be less than when God calls us to be more than. And self-consciousness occurred. And then self-consciousness requires sacrifice. And then sacrifice covers right our self-consciousness but the only true thing that can cover it is Jesus so we're going to stay in the old testament we're going to stay concentric to this idea so Abraham and Isaac everybody's heard the story of Abraham and Isaac Uh, maybe I don't imagine everybody here but let me give you just a real quick recap so Abraham dude lives in his dad's house at 75 years old mark that down Dude's 75 years old, been ripping living at dad's house. So I I don't <laughs> I don't know about y'all, but like that's that's a long time. Now they lived 200 years, so let's let's cut that 75 and a half. He's still like 38. We're still ripping at dad's house, right? So God didn't really pick a high achiever. He went out there making his own way, right? But something about it, dude, living at his dad's house, he's like, hey, I want you to leave your dad's house. So he calls him out of his dad's house. He leaves comfort and security. So Abraham then goes, he does the tango with a pharaoh of Egypt. So my man goes from living in dad's house to having a whole issue with the president of the United States, right? And, and so the, there's a tango there. His wife's way better looking than him. uh he's worried about getting killed. All that happens. So this is one guy. So next, in that, God covers him in the battle with Pharaoh, right? because whatever reason, God had picked Abraham, covers him. This weird thing happens with Pharaoh. Pharaoh wants his wife. Pharaoh somehow gives him gifts at the end because God gives plagues. It's the Old Testament. I don't know. I'm not going to get into it. But all that happens with him. So then he takes that blessing, and he has Lot, his nephew, and they have so much. So the guy that lived in his dad's house at 75 now does what God told him, God called him out of his security, told him to go somewhere else. He goes and does that. Now he has so much stuff that him and his nephew can't keep everything they have in the same place. So he's like, bro, we got to split up. I don't want there to be any problems with this. We can't, like, my guys are wanting to fight with your guys because your guys are trying to get their sheep on my land. He's like, hey, let's look, you pick where you want to go. You go that way, I'll go the other way. It's like, cool, man. So same guy. This guy's lived at his, ha- at his dad's house. So he was 75 years old. Now he has so much stuff that he's just splitting the land. So after that, his nephew Lot gets taken by s- some warring kings. So this, is, this blew my mind. He took 318 dudes and went and fought four kings and got Lot and everybody back. He ends up going before the king of Sodom, right, Sodom and Gomorrah. So this, this same guy. It's mixed up in the Sodom and Gomorrah story. He's ripping on Egypt, right? He actually gets visited by King Melchizedek, which is like the pre incarnate Christ, right? He's like, Jesus himself came to him in pre incarnate form as Melchizedek and gave him an offering. This guy, all from the guy that lived at his dad's house till he was 75 years old, right? So, I don't know, man, just the more you get into it, you're like, man, this Adam and Eve was one chapter in the Bible. (laughs) One chapter in the Bible, all of humanity fell, and, like, seven chapters is the story of Abraham and Isaac. So I don't know if it matters, like, by volume, but he got a lot of, got a lot of info. So then God, after Melchizedek, the king of Sodom is like, hey, take all this stuff. And he said, man, I don't want anything from you. I don't want anybody to be able to say that I'm, I have more because of you. My dad said, go do this thing. I did it because my dad said I have enough. So he lays that down. So then God promises him, hey, you're gonna be the father of my generations. He brings him out, he points up to the stars, and he says, Hey, look, count them all. That's the number of descendants you will have. And he's like, Hey man, I'm a ninety my a hundred years old. My wife is ninety-nine years old. Like that's no shot, it's happening. So here's where it gets funny. What do we do? We start meddling in God's plan for our lives. Who else? Who's done that before, right? Who's introduced some logic? Like, oh, God, man. So Sarah can't get pregnant still. She's 99 years old. And so she's like, well, God said that he was going to give you descendants. Let's help him out. <laughs> We're going to help out God, right? That won't hurt anything. So she te- takes her servant. We're still talking about sacrifice. I'm sorry. I just I had to give you the cliff notes real quick. So she takes her servant. She's like, hey, this is my servant. She looks real good. Just take her as a wife. So what happens? who to have She has a child. So it's Ishmael. So what we talked about earlier was this. Remember how I said when God's favor is on you and he gives you his favor, whether you use it for good or bad, it's still his favor on your life. He doesn't take it back just because you start using it inappropriately. Well, that should call you to a higher measure of accountability, right? So if I have the blessing of God on my life, which he had, he had the blessing that you will be the father and that your descendants will be nations. Right? So... He ends up having Ishmael. He, God asks him about him. He's like, man, I still want him to be blessed. Then there's who to thunk. Two women can't decide who's more important. That's just the nature of you're not, probably not supposed to be with two women. I don't know. It's just my opinion. Apparently God's too. So <laughs> they can't get along about whose kid's more important. And one of them starts picking on the other kid. So then they get cast out, right? So, but still God's favor is on him. Side mission. Another message in and of itself. To this day... Muhammad, the prophet Muhammad, is traced back as a descendant of Ishmael. And Jesus is traced back as a descendant of Isaac. And Palestine and the Arabic nations are traced back to Ishmael, father of generations. And so is Isaac. So let that be, for me, accountability to you to know that when the Lord tells you that there's a blessing on your life, And he is doing his work. We co-labor, but we don't meddle. Because his blessing that he told you that he was going to give you doesn't go away. Just because you start meddling. Like I said, another message. Sorry, side quest. All right. We're going to keep going because this is a lot. So Abraham then tries to save Sodom. This dude is busy very busy human. He tries to save Sodom. He actually negotiates with God, which I think is a really interesting concept. God's like, I'm going to destroy the people. He's like, well, what if there's this many people? He doesn't even go and try and find them. He just keeps negotiating with God. That was like so funny. I guess when I heard the Bible story as a kid, I always thought like maybe he went to find 50 people and he couldn't. So he came back. He's like, what about 45? He went to go find 45. He came back. He's like, what about 40? No, man, this dude just tangoed with God and like, 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 hey, how much is this? I was in Africa, and I'm trying to buy a little wooden elephant. It started at $70. I ended up leaving there for $3, right? You just keep haggling until the bottom dollar. And, like, he just kind of haggled with God, right? This dude's crushing it. So then after that, he tangles with King Abimelech. He, like, you like didn't learn it from Pharaoh. You're going to redo it. You redo the same thing again with a whole nother king. Same exact problem, same exact lie, same exact result. God spares him because God said there's something on his life. Thirteen years after all of that, he has Isaac. And so now now he has Isaac. He has this promise of generations. So this is where we get, and I'm not going to sit here a long time because at the end of the day, the highest truth comes from, I'd say, what we derive from it. If you haven't heard the story of Abraham and Isaac and, the al- and bringing Isaac to the altar, I want you all to picture something. You've just been through everything that I just listed. All those things. You've seen God manifest himself against a Pharaoh and a king. You've had Melchizedek come to you. You've had all of these things. You've born a child with your wife at 100 years old. Like All these things have occurred. You finally have the promise. You have the promise. You have the first descendant. And God has pointed out how many you will have. And he says that my covenant will be with your son, Isaac. And then after all of that, God's like, oh, hey, by the way, I want you to take him and I want you to sacrifice him as a burnt offering. So we just talked about the burnt offering thing, right? Like there's nothing left. You actually have to, like, put your hand on it and then kill it. So all those important factors are here. So his son, whom he loves, and it says that. It says whom he loves. God said, I want you to sacrifice him. So what's that dude's response? He wakes up early the next morning. (laughs) That's what the word said. I would think, like, man, that's like a three-month prayer. You put out the fleece out. You're like, you're trying to like make sure that wasn't some weird food you ate that caused you to have a weird dream, right? And you're like, are you sure that you're sure that you're sure? Because this goes against what you said because he is, you didn't say that one of my descendants would be the father of generations. You said that this one will be, but you want me to kill him. I I mean, the guy's like, the more you dive into that, the more, like, you're just like, man, this, this guy's nuts, right? I mean, like, you can't make sense of that. So not only does he call him, and he gets up the next morning, he goes early, it says that it took him three days to get there. So now he's traveling for three days, knowing that the final destination is to kill the one most important thing, and to truly, if you think about it, he's there to kill the promise on his life. Because the word was very clear. It said that he would make his covenant with Isaac and that Isaac would be the father of generations. And God's like, no, you're going to kill the promise. And he's like, all right. So here's what's really neat. God doesn't say, hey, go take him down the street. He says, take him to the mountains where I will tell you where to do it. So it's like also God's like, hey, you got to actually go up a mountain you got to go to the highest possible place. It's going to take effort, intentionality. You have to bring servants. You have to chop wood. You have to prepare to sacrifice the most important thing to you. So I don't know about y'all if y'all have ever been called to sacrifice something that's deeply important to your life. The model is not only are you supposed to sacrifice it, you're actually supposed to take it to the highest possible place. It's going to take effort and intentionality. You're going to have to bring people with you. And then you're going to have to get there and ask me where exactly to do it. I'm going to give you the general idea, but I'm going to say, first go up the mountain. And then when you're on the mountain and when you've shown me that you're willing to do it, then I'm going to show you exactly where to do it. Hey, by the way, at the end of that, you still have to actually sacrifice the promise on your life. So Isaac being hip. He's carrying his own wood for him to be burned on the altar. He has no idea. He's looking around, and he's like, man, we got the wood. Dad's carrying the fire. He's got the knife for cutting the throat. And he's like, hey, player, we're missing something. Where's the sacrifice? And so (laughs) this is like the most gangster response ever. Abraham said, Yeah, God will provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on. It's like, so think about this. Like, culturally, Isaac has been to every day, uh, seen this process. And they were missing something really. the The key factor here was the actual sacrifice. So Abraham just hits him with a, because I said so. Right? Who, who's heard that from their parents? Like because I said so, and he basically just said I. Right. So they get up to the top of the mountain. They get to the place, and so they start stacking everything up. And here's Isaac. Isaac's like, man, Dad, why are you, you taking rope out? We don't have the we don't have the thing to sacrifice yet. And his Dad's like, ah, oh, Dad, God's gonna provide a lamb. Don't worry about it, bro. And he's like, starts tying it to his wrists. You got to figure Isaac's like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This rope is for the sacrifice. What are you doing? And God's like, oh, yeah, it's for the sacrifice. God's going to provide a lamb. And so then he starts tying him behind his back and tying his feet to his hands. You know, you make sure there's no struggle. Um, Isaac takes all of that. Now, guys, like, this is all one scripture, but just think about the concept here. It's like Isaac, there's something about Isaac willingness to be sacrificed he knew what was up to he was old enough to understand this and he was going to the altar himself doesn't say that isaac stabbed his dad in the eye doesn't say he like went for a a shot down low trying to run off into the hills it just says like hey his dad tied him up and put him on the altar And look, he might have been like five years old. I have no idea. But he was old enough to talk about it, to understand it, and to go to the altar. He was old enough for that. I don't know. It doesn't say how old he was. So the word of the Lord said, And Abraham reached out with his hand, put his hand on his son's head. And he took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And it says, he said, do not reach out your hand against the boy and do not do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked and behold, behind him. Was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns, and Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering in the place of his son. So, like again, this is like this these threads of scripture, right? The substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus. And when he talks about it, it's like the Lord will provide a lamb. Well, it's the same word that they use every time they refer they reference Jesus as the lamb that was sacrificed. It's the same word. So we have these these threads all the way from Adam and Eve we have them through the Levitical stories through Moses Abraham Lot and all the way into Jesus and then into us and so in verse 12 if you put it back up there for me Christy it says um, and do nothing to him for now I know that you fear God So this word fear is also the word reverence. You revere God. And so what I want to sit on real quick is this idea that we don't fear a good loving father. We revere a good loving father. I don't not do a thing that is not good for me out of fear that I will get in trouble with my dad. I don't do a thing that my dad says is not good for me or others because I have reverence for the wisdom of my father. Because I truly believe that his heart for me is more than my heart for me. And so we, when we choose to give influence to our father and we operate and we sit in the reverence of a good loving father it guides us to all truth. So we don't not do it because we fear which lo- there's a healthy place my kids fear me sometimes right there's a healthy pace, place for that fear Well, what, what's beautiful is that when I see my children operate from a place of fear I get an opportunity to, to tell them why they should change that to reverence so what happens is this when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and they felt exposed God they were afraid what did he do he clothed them with a sacrifice to remind them that they ought not fear him in the way that they once did, but they should revere him in the way that they always should. So that he, asks, he, he pr- always provides. Same thing with Ishmael, where God could say, hey, you jacked this up, and they could fear God for the rest of their life. He says, no, but my promise is still good, so don't fear me, revere me. Now, I'm not saying there isn't a place, there's the word talks about fearing the Lord, I'm not speaking in those circumstances, but where we give the Lord an opportunity to substitute, it's a place of fear, true fear, which I'd say the definition to me of fear is believing that there's less than, that God is less than. The only place fear is allowed to live is where you will put anything above the authority and power of God. So we don't put anything above God, even God, we revere him. And so, The last part of this is this. So to kind of close out, we have the first part of our story where Adam and Eve, where we look past the daily sacrifice, the ones that we make, where we're willing to settle for less than. We have the story in the Levitical law of burnt offering where we see a model where a good loving father who doesn't have the ability to speak and interact with us sets a law in such a way that the priority structure of that is that he would call you to sacrifice the unknown and unknowable, not the secure thing, which means that you have to operate from a place of trust. And then we come to the end here, and we get to where God called Isaac, Abraham, to sacrifice the promise, which means either God's not truthful, or there's something about the promise that I don't understand. Because he was going to do it. He was going to slay the thing that was going to be generations. So what I want to take away from this, and I think what the Lord really, really put on my heart is this. We talked earlier about how two kids, you give them jelly beans in each hand. And they're, by design, they're trying to figure out, which, what am I willing to give away? I have to fight that. I'm 38 years old. And I I literally pour the jelly beans in my hand. I'm like, this is a good pour. And I give it to my kids. I, I'm i serious. I'm aware of that thing in me. That, like, when I go to serve dinner and I'm making everybody's plate and I realize that I made everybody's plate a little heavy and I'm not going to get how much food I want, I have to, like, check my spirit before I go take one of their plates and be like, oh, yeah, this is Lincoln's plate at the end, right? Just like this, This is always Lincoln's plate. It's so like it is in your nature, guys. We are we're literally fighting the nature that started in the garden, of trying to grab control of everything and and hold on to everything. And so, what I'd say is this, and I want to I want to bring ourselves into as we're winding down. I want to bring ourselves into the thought of Abraham and Isaac. So. There's a couple of options that can occur as you're walking up a mountain to sacrifice the one beloved son. And I want you all to think about this. If you have anyone in your life, if you're a kid, you have a best friend or a parent that you feel very connected with. If you're a parent and you have a child. I want you to consider the three three things that I think we have a propensity to do when we're called to sacrifice. The first is this, we diminish The sacrifice. So listen, the first is we actually do what God calls us to do. The four of us on the planet right now that would have the guts to do what Abraham did. Because that's the foundation that generations were built on, was his willingness to do what he was called to do. So that's option one. We're, We're actually fully willing to go do it because I picture myself a little different. I'm like over here a rebuilding. And I'm like, oh, man, this might not be the spot. I'm giving God time to tell me don't do it, right? So I'm going to take, take the whole altar down, and I'm like, oh, no, it needs to go over here, and I'm going to put it here, and then the sun's going to set a little bit. I'm like, oh, I don't like that shadow. I'm going to take it all down and come over here. I'm like buying as much time as I can. I'm kicking rocks, trying to figure out, you know, pull a hammy. It's going to take me an extra day. I'm giving God lots of time tell me don't sacrifice my favorite thing right but so the one is you actually do it so two is this and I think this one is um this one is probably likely is we start to diminish the value of of the sacrifice so to make it easier man I mean Isaac wasn't that good of a kid you know Ishmael's 13 now I could have generations through Ishmael, and I mean, God did say that my covenant was going to be with Isaac, but he smacks at dinner. (laughs) Yeah, I just, by the time you make it up there, you like don't care about Isaac like you did when you left the house. And so we diminish the sacrifice, and if we're lucky, we still sacrifice him if we're lucky, even though we diminish this ac- that, that thing, we still lay it down. But if we're really, really, really unlucky, or I would say is if we r- we fall into the depth of our humanity, not only do we diminish it, but we diminish it to the point that we no longer need to sacrifice it. And we find some other thing. We, we, we make Isaac just unimportant enough that some other thing is important and we're like oh I'll substitute I'm gonna meddle and I'm gonna go ahead and sacrifice this other thing that's more important who during your fast was tempted to say I really don't like soft drinks that much you know I really don't like tea Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna sacrifice tea during my fast instead of soft drinks I think we're all tempted to do it, right? Because you're gonna, you're you're going to the altar. You're like, man, like, what do I really need to give up? So, if we're really, if we're really, really in it, what do we do? Now we end up holding on to the thing that we've intentionally diminished to the point that we don't actually care about it enough. And I want th- y'all to think about this in the context of marriages, of jobs. Think about the repercussions of not holding the one thing high enough that it's like, hey, this thing just got above God. I'm going to sacrifice it because it just got too big. And instead of sacrificing it, which would open up all opportunity for more, and you'd feel the pain of having to sacrifice it, which might then make you not duplicate that again. Instead, you diminish the value of it, and now you're left holding something that's not that valuable. You forfeit all the gold that would come from the sacrifice. And you're probably going to do it again because it wasn't that big of a deal. So the importance of sacrifice is lost on us because we didn't have to do it like they had to do it. But it's the same outcome. Christy, if you want to put that quote up there for me. Is the promise of God what he has promised you? Or is, the promi- or is it the promise of God, of a God who promises? It's so easy to get lost on the promise that you're living in. It's so easy to elevate the, this thing into such a place of importance that you're willing to die or you put it above God. And the hierarchy is, it's not that promise that we should be after. It's truly believing that we serve a God who promises. The promise is actually a God who promises, not the promise that you're living in. And so the beauty of that is the Lord called him in the last moment to say, don't, don't sacrifice the promise on your life. And so what I'd say for me is, this has echoed in my heart for weeks now where when I have to make a decision between what will be most comfortable for me and when I make a decision of what is probably best for me and those that I love I have to remind myself that the moment that I put comfort or security or my character or my reputation or my relationships anywhere above God then I have diminished God below He who promises. Does that make sense? And He can't He can't be God there. That that's not God. You've made Him something else. So, th- what I would say is this: uh, I've been this week. This thing has been stirring in me. It's so funny. The music was so low and slow, but I was up front and I was like, like man, I want to fight someone. Like, I just, like, this thing is stirring in me to, like, fight. If y'all don't know this, I was a policeman for 12 years. I've been in a lot of fights and it's been a long time since I've, like, fought fought somebody. (laughs) A big, big left turn there, right? Just, (laughs) but here's the thing is, like, the best fight I can have is the one with myself the best thing I can do is take every thought captive to Christ and live under the authority of a God who promises. And so the best fight I can fight is me. And the worst thing I can do is lie to me because I'm the only one sufficiently capable of calling me on my own stuff. Right? Because the lie we tell ourselves is the worst lie because we don't believe it. So we have to actually betray ourselves to act on it. So, Mike, if you'll come back up, we're going straight like delirious set today. I'm having flashbacks to the river center and delirious back in the gap. So I asked Micah to come back and play this song. And I would just ask that as we close today, I'm going to pray through a little bit of the song. But as we close today, I would ask this of y'all is, is one. I would ask that the Lord reveal those things that you've diminished but not sacrificed. I don't know that we can go back and maybe maybe you can revisit the gold on on a sacrifice that you diminished and then still sacrifice, which I'd say that's a victory and I applaud it. but anywhere in your life right now that you are diminishing a thing that the Lord has laid on your heart to lay down through the power of the Holy Spirit because that's what we have influence was restored. And so now we have this spirit enlightening, enlightening our hearts. We don't need to operate within the law that says, if I give, if I give less than, that I'm going to be publicly exposed. Instead, I have an, the indwelling spirit of the Trinity who's speaking to my heart and calling me to be more than. And so as we go right now, I want two things to echo in your mind. One is I want you to ask the Lord during this song, where have you diminished a sacrifice? And is it still there? And I want you to ask him to bring, bring revelation to the value of that thing back to the place where it sits just at his feet. Beautiful thing we shared earlier. Because here's the thing. At some point you loved that thing so much that it was too much. So let's have him restore that thing. There's restoration there. The second thing is this. I want to break off as we sing this song. The power of this song will break off any identity of less than. And I want to, I want to reframe the language of this family. That we will no longer be called less than. But instead we will call each other and will be called by our Father to be more than. We'll be called to be more than we are today and we break off any language that says that you're less than you could be or less than you should be. Less than is a people of lack, and we're not. We're on the winning team. We're a people of more than. I want to call my children to be more than they are today because that's I see the victory. I see the identity. So, Father, we just ask that as we enter into this song that your hand would be on our hearts and our minds. Father, that you would truly move in the deepest places. Father, that you would bring back thoughts, bring back opportunities for sacrifice. Where we chose to diminish the goodness, the wholeness, the fruit. We just ask that that would be stirred in us. And Father, we just echo the words, more than, more than, more than.
0: But never paid the price. Find me in the river, find me there, find me on my knees with my soul. didn't count on suffering, we didn't count on pain, but if the blessings in the valley, in the river I will wait.
1: you're a good loving father father we just thank you that we have a community to share that will call us higher father we pray that as we leave here today that just as we embrace this community earlier that there would be an invitation that would be open in our hearts that just like in the biblical days where sacrifice was one where we had to go before the priest where there were expectations, where someone was going to look at us and say, "You did not bring everything you have." That we would be a community that calls each other, each other to the highest place. That this group of individuals in this room would be that for each other and for everyone around them. Pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. 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 Man, how awesome is it when Micah leads us in worship? It is, uh, I was thinking, thank you, Micah. I'll just say this. I know he probably loves getting talked about in front of people. But uh, today was like such a cool thought. We had one person up here worshiping. We're talking about something so intimate but communal, a sacrifice. It's like the Lord's hand and stuff is so fun to me that. I never told Micah what I was teaching on, and I didn't expect to get here and have one person lead worship. And but his, he just does his thing. We get to just be along for the ride. So, in feeding off of that, um, we have a couple people that are getting married next week. Can I put y'all on? Can I put y'all on on the front? Come up. So we're not gonna let these folks get married without. Uh, praying over them so if y'all come up here for us y'all cool with that i love it so we won't see the next time we see them they will be two will become one and uh so let's pray one i think that's so fun the last message that they heard is going to be one where um for the two of them that they would never diminish one another that they would never allow the enemy to come in to allow them to elevate a relationship with each other above a relationship with the father
0: Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit cedarhousechurch.com.